I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employers respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Tired of restless nights? At Lisa, we know good sleep is essential for mental, physical, and emotional health. From memory foam mattresses to hybrids that keep you cool all night long, Lisa's mattresses offer exceptional comfort and support with free delivery and 100 nights to try out your mattress in the comfort of your home. For a limited time, save up to $700 off select mattresses plus two free pillows. Go to lisa.com slash iHeart for an additional $50 off mattresses and select goods. Exclusions apply. See lisa.com for more details. Hey, this is Christina Quinn. I'm the host of Try This, the Washington Post's new series of audio courses. The idea behind Try This is to become better functioning humans without having to comb the internet for countless hours. In our first course, we learned how to sleep better. Now, we're going to learn how to make our friendships stronger. I'll offer expert tips that are doable, and I'll keep it short. So let's do this. Glasses in session. Find Try This from the Washington Post wherever you listen. I'm going to survive whatever it takes if I got to kill these people, if I got to kill them and dump his body with her. He may have just enough to get her out where he could get her in a position to kill. He could have had a sense of protection knowing that I'm doing this to pay back this debt to a corrupt official, a police officer. Push comes to shove, I can take him with me. He's in jail, so she does feel safe and secure in the relationship now. She knew too much. She knew everything. Welcome back to Shattered Souls, The Car Barn Murders. I'm your host, Karen Smith. This is episode 11. This podcast may contain graphic language and is not suitable for children. Previously on The Car Barn Murders. William Clark, who became my primary suspect made a cataclysmic underestimation of his paramour, Mary Branch. In the middle of the night on May 27, 1935, Clark took Mary for a ride to a desolate mill in Ilchester, Maryland. He beat her to near unconsciousness with a blackjack before tossing her body over a 35-foot bridge into the Patapsco River. He had to silence her so he drove all the way out to an old gristmill, a place where very few people would ever set foot. William Clark took Mary's debilitated body from the car and heaved her over the bridge span. In less than two seconds, Mary fell three and a half stories and splashed down into the river, the equivalent of being struck by a car going 35 miles an hour. Jagged granite rocks jutted out from the water, which was only four feet deep. 
Mary's bleeding and battered body was jolted by the cold, unforgiving surface. She'd landed in a pocket between the rocks that surely would have killed her. Down was up, up was down, and Mary fought to get her bearings in the frigid water. There was no light, only a waning crescent moon, and as Mary surfaced into the blackness, she screamed. Flows of red poured from the gashes in her head. Gaining a foothold, she instinctively looked up at the bridge span. Through the blood and haze, she saw the dark silhouette of William Clark peering over the rail, staring down at her. Instantaneously, she understood why he had insisted she go with him at such a late hour, and she quieted down. He wanted her dead, so she played along. After a few seconds, she watched William Clark turn and walk away. The car engine gunned. She saw the headlights sweep across the treetops and waited for the sound to fade before she moved again. William Clark drove back over the hills to the apartment on Gerard Street, believing his mission had been accomplished, that Mary's body would never be found, that his secrets were silenced. Mary Branch's survival instincts kicked in. A shot of adrenaline coursed through her arteries and the fight-or-flight mechanism sent all of the remaining blood to her brain and vital organs. She grabbed onto the rocks, struggling against the water flow and heaviness of her dress as she made her way to the riverbank. A neck-deep hole in the river bottom sent the water swirling above her head and she doggy-paddled to the next rock. Her feet underneath her again, she took off one of her white gloves and covered the gaping wounds on her head. She thought she was bleeding to death. The rumble of water and distant skittering in the woods were the only sounds. Nothing was familiar. Where had Clark taken her? A large crumbling building sat to her left, the vestiges of the old grist mill. She stumbled out of the water and up the riverbank. Blood dripped from her head and felt warm against her cold skin. She moved her glove from one wound to the other to try and quell the flow. The adrenaline rush was wearing off and pain started to take hold. She needed help and quickly. She followed the dirt path and it led her to a small ramshackle house on the river's edge. Mary banged on the front door and pled with anyone to answer. After a moment, the homeowner, Sylvester Kugel, appeared in the doorway. He saw the blood covering Mary's face and her soaking wet clothes. Sylvester Kugel didn't waste time asking her how she got there or what happened. He guided Mary Branch through the woods to his car and drove her to the police station in Catonsville. An ambulance was called and she was taken to the emergency hospital. Sylvester Kugel saved her life. Later that morning, after William Clark got back to the apartment on Gerard Street, he got a message from his cousin, Benny Johnson, via a taxi driver. When Clark answered the door, the taxi driver told him that Mary Branch was in the emergency hospital and had survived the beating and fall into the water. William Clark asked the cabbie if he was sure about that. He was sure. Clark shit his pants and ran out of the apartment. A woman who was inside with him at the time overheard the conversation and ran outside after him. Could this woman have been Edith Small, the blonde woman from Illinois Avenue that Clark had reportedly been seeing? 
The story of the attempted murder of Mary Branch hit the newspapers later that day in the evening edition. Mary was questioned by Catonsville police detectives and she named William Clark as her assailant. Catonsville contacted Washington, D.C., and Clark was quickly taken into custody. The next day, on May 28th, armed with a warrant, Lieutenant Edward Pullman and Patrolman Earl Smith drove down from Catonsville to the district to pick Clark up and take him to the Towson Jail. The D.C. police wanted to do several show-ups with recent robbery victims while they had Clark in custody, and they consented to allow the Catonsville police to take him after Clark waived a hearing in D.C. He denied the charges of attempted murder, but agreed to go voluntarily with the Catonsville officers. Once again, Clark thought he could talk his way out of it, but this time, his alibi source was the victim. The Washington Evening Star reported, Clark was one of the first persons arrested for investigation in connection with the Chevy Chase, Maryland car barn double murder and robbery several months ago, police said, and was released after Miss Branch told authorities he was with her in the city at the time. Mary Branch had given William Clark an alibi and five months had passed since the car barn murders. What prompted William Clark to try to kill Mary Branch now after all that time had passed? And why was her attempted murder not mentioned anywhere in the case file? Why did I have to dig and just happen to find it in an old newspaper during my research of yet another potentially connected crime, the murder of Lizzie Janes. Why was any crime that involved William Clark completely ignored in the detective's notes? Recalling Mary Branch's interview on January 22nd, the day after the murders, she told DC detective Frank Brass that William Clark had moved his clothes out of her apartment two weeks before the murders of Emery Smith and James Mitchell. So it seemed to me like they weren't getting along. Clark was back at her apartment on Saturday, January 19th, and according to Mary's statement, he stayed there until January 21st. She had alibied him, even though the story disintegrated with her own words that she and Clark slept in separate rooms that night and that their friend, James Weir, went home. And there was more. Detective Brass had also spoken to Francis Gregory. He said that Mary Branch had been confiding in him and said that William Clark would sit around and plan holdups. She also told Gregory that she heard Clark was going with a blonde girl on Illinois Avenue and said that if she found that to be true, she would tell everything she knew to the police. A couple of days later, Clark beat her with a blackjack and tossed her over the bridge. In a subsequent Washington Post article, Mary Branch told a reporter that Clark tried to kill her because she, quote, knew too much. So not only did Mary Branch falsely alibi William Clark on the Carbarn case, she outright lied during her interview. Mary said that Clark's Capital Transit uniform was sold to, quote, a car man, but I just can't remember his name. She knew exactly who Francis Gregory was, and she was with Clark and James Weir on the night they picked Gregory up at the Jesse Theater to sell it to him. That was too close for comfort since Francis Gregory still worked at Chevy Chase Lake, so Mary Branch just chose not to remember Gregory, the man to whom she'd been confiding about William Clark and his secrets. Speaking of Francis Gregory, 
I read his interview statement from January 22nd over and over again, trying to make sense out of it. He had diarrhea of the mouth, and he remembered a whole lot of unimportant details, but he left out information that really mattered, like unlocking all of the doors to the ticket office during the night of the murders. I tried really hard to give Francis Gregory every benefit of the doubt, but I recently found a piece of the puzzle that flies in the face of all of his assertions about what really happened that night. It was a statement by John Stout, the evening clerk in the newly received typewritten notes by Baltimore Detective Stuart Deal. Here's what it says. Mr. Stout states that Mr. Mitchell came on duty about 11.15 p.m. January 20th, and they talked for a while. Emery Smith came over and rapped on the door about 2 or 2.30 a.m., and Mitchell said, There's Smith at the door, and went and let him in. Son of a bitch. This is how one little statement can alter an entire investigation. I spent the better part of an earlier episode defending my great-uncle Emery's possible complicity in the robbery when I didn't need to. Emery Smith knocked on the door of the ticket office for James Mitchell to let him in. The key they found in my Uncle Emery's pocket didn't go to the door of the ticket office. Otherwise, he just would have let himself in. He couldn't have unlocked the front door because he didn't have the key to it. The only other person inside of that office who could have unlocked the door before the robbery and murder was Francis Gregory. I knew that Gregory was obfuscating when he talked with the detectives, but I wasn't sure which parts of his statements were true and which parts skirted the facts. But now it was clear, and I'm going to let you hear it all for yourself. This is Francis Gregory's full statement, given the day after the murders. Francis Gregory, age 23, 1214 Evart Street, Northeast, Washington, D.C., has been employed by the Capital Transit Company for 10 months, average salary $28 to $30. Worked for the American stores in Washington, D.C. for about nine months, also worked for Edgar Morris Sales Company in Washington for one year. Reported for work about 12.25 p.m. January 20, 1935, and made five trips and finished at 9.09 p.m. And Mr. Stout sent me to Georgetown to get a car at 36th and M Street, and I got back to the barn at 11.30 p.m., and then I took a car back to 36th and M Street and returned to the barn about 1.30 a.m. January 21st. I rode in with Dyer. He's due in at 1.29 a.m., and we came into the office together and he turned in, and Dyer and Davis left to go home together. I think Davis had his own car, which is a Ford coach, and at this time, Mr. Mitchell and Stout were in the cage, and I went in the trainman's room and took a leak and took my coat and laid it down on the bench and laid down. This was about 1.40 a.m., and I heard the crew that's due in at 1.54 a.m. They usually get in a little ahead of time because they don't have so many to haul at that hour. They were in about 10 minutes, and when they started out, the motorman, Batten is his name, and the conductor's name is John Splond, Batten told me I better pull off my overshoes because in the morning my feet wouldn't be worth a damn, and he asked me if I wanted him to pull them off for me. So he pulled them off before he left the room, and I went to sleep. And sometime during the night I woke up. I was hot because Mr. Smith had fixed the fire, and at this time I opened two windows on the Columbia Country Club side. I think these windows have screens on the outside. I think there's a window in the ventilator where a man could get in, or they might could come in through the roof. I'll tell you what I think about this murder. I think they forced Mr. Smith to get Mitchell to open the door, 
But of course, that don't sound right either because it looked like that Mr. Mitchell was shot while he was sitting in his chair. Yesterday morning, the officer and I saw footprints on the wall beside the office. I used to sleep regular at the barn, but not lately because I've made arrangements with a friend who has a spare room and when it's late, I go to his house. And the reason I didn't go there to sleep that night was on account I forgot to tell him and I haven't got a key and I would have to wake him up. So I had to be at work at 6.25 a.m. That's why I decided to stay at the barn. I've come out from the trainman's room early in the morning and found Mr. Mitchell asleep in his chair. In fact, I thought he was asleep. I feel like Clark was in on this job. I feel like Clark was in on this job. Not only did Francis Gregory drop William Clark's name, the detectives also suspected Clark of being involved in the murders. So I'll ask the obvious question again. If William Clark was such a strong suspect, why was nothing ever done about it? I'll revisit Francis Gregory's statement later on for a full breakdown, but I wanted you to hear his own words and couple them with the fact that my uncle Emery Smith had to knock to have James Mitchell let him in. Rumors circulated about my uncle Emery's possible involvement, the inside job, for years after the crime, even within my own family. They didn't want to believe that was a possibility, but no one ever told them differently. The air needs to be cleared once and for all. The car barn case may have been an inside job like everyone thought, but it sure as hell had nothing to do with my great uncle. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Now I'd like to introduce you to Meaningful Beauty, the famed skincare brand created by iconic supermodel Cindy Crawford. It's her secret to absolutely gorgeous skin. Meaningful Beauty makes powerful and effective skincare simple, and it's loved by millions of women. It's formulated for all ages and all skin tones and types, and it's designed to work as a complete skincare system, leaving your skin feeling soft, smooth, and nourished. I recommend starting with Cindy's full regimen, which contains all five of her best-selling products, including the amazing Youth Activating Melon. Melon Serum. This next generation serum has the power of Melon Leaf stem cell technology. It's Melon Leaf stem cells encapsulated for freshness and released onto the skin to support a visible reduction in the appearance of wrinkles. With thousands of glowing five-star reviews, why not give it a try? Subscribe today and you can get the amazing Meaningful Beauty system for just $49.95. That includes our introductory five-piece system, free gifts, free shipping, and a 60-day money-back guarantee. All of that available at MeaningfulBeauty.com. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. The best conversations I have with my colleagues are the ones that happen when no one is looking, when we're not 100% sure yet what to write. Hopefully, having conversations like this can help you figure out your own point of view. 
That's kind of our job as Washington Post opinions columnists. I'm Charles Lane, Deputy Opinion Editor. And I'm Amanda Ripley, a contributing columnist. We're going to bring you into these conversations on a new podcast called Impromptu. Follow Impromptu now, wherever you listen. Back to William Clark and Mary Branch. Clark was denied bond on the attempted murder, and he was held in the Towson jail. He had a speedy trial and apparently couldn't afford a private attorney because he represented himself in court. It was a bench trial, with Judge Frank Duncan deciding the facts of the case rather than a jury. He pleaded not guilty and staunchly denied the accusations, and as was his custom, he provided an alibi defense, saying he wasn't in the area at the time Mary was beaten and thrown over the bridge. Mary Branch took the stand and told the entire story, which newspaper reporters detailed for the next day's edition. On June 17, 1935, Less than a month after the attempted murder, Judge Duncan found Clark guilty and sentenced him to eight years in the Maryland Penitentiary. He would share his prison time with Robert Janney in the fall after his sentence for armed robbery. Finding this story and figuring out the reasons why William Clark wanted Mary Branch dead sent him straight to primary suspect status for the Carbarn case. As I was finding more articles about the attempted murder, there was a photograph in the Portsmouth Times from June 2, 1935, while Clark's trial was ongoing. The photo caption reads, Says she was hurled off bridge. Swathed in bandages, Mrs. Mary Branch, 25, is shown with a friend after naming to police the man she asserts struck her twice over the head and then threw her from the Patapsco River Bridge at Ilchester. It's a picture of Mary Branch, and I could clearly see the gauze wrapped around her head. She's wearing a dark coat with a fur collar, heels, and she seems to be preening a man who's dressed in a three-piece suit and a straw boater hat. He's a little heavyset, and he's looking almost straight down the barrel of the camera lens with this stupefied look on his face. Could this man, identified in the photo as a friend, be William Clark? Would Mary Branch go anywhere near the man who just a couple of weeks before had tried to kill her? Yeah, she would. This is where their story goes off the rails, but all of the evidence to explain their crazy love-hate relationship was inside of the case file. William Clark went to the slammer for eight years, but he didn't waste any time trying to get back out. Just like Robert Janney, he spent the majority of his time writing letters. The detectives started intercepting Clark's mail as well. Most of his letters were to Mary Branch, but there were plenty of others to family members and influential people who Clark thought could help him get sprung from the lockup. The first intercepted letter is dated January 31, 1936, and it's to William Clark from Mary Branch. Friday morning, January 31, 1936. My dearest darling, I received your letter just a few minutes ago and answer it right away. Darling, I got up out of my bed and went down and called Mr. Hedelman to have him come over and talk to you. Darling, I'm hoping it won't put me back in bed, sweetheart. If I'm able, I'm coming to see you Monday. I have to meet Mr. Hedelman at 12 o'clock. I have no car to get around, and I think it's best to get him to straighten things with Viola and all other things. Darling, I don't see how you can think that I'm interested in anyone else but you. Can't no one say I've been out with a man since you've been gone. There's no one in the world that can take your place. 
Darling, just please let weather get a little better so I can get well of this cold, and I'll show you what I'm going to do for you. If any chance of getting my baby home, I'll show you that you'll be here. Darling, I told Thomas and all of them that I was writing to you. If they did want to help me, it was okay. He did something very nice for me so I could help you, darling, so know there's only one thing that hold Thomas back from helping us, and you know what that is. That news that Thomas told me I will tell you when I come over. Darling, I'm sick, and then on top of that I'm worried. See, darling, that was all a lie about that letter. That was not my people. Sweetheart, I didn't close my eyes last night. I just waited until morning to get to the janitor's apartment so I could call Mr. Hedelman so he could go over and talk to you. Well, sweetheart, we'll close. I'm going straight and get janitor to mail this, and I hope you'll get it by tomorrow. Close with all love to you. Bye-bye, darling. Mary B. The next two letters were also from Mary to Clark. My dear darling, I received your letter just a little while ago, and sorry to hear such bad news. Of course, it hurt me to hear that, and being sick and so weak, but I'm glad to say I'm feeling much better today, but that upset my nerves. Thomas and them had to make up their mind to help me, and he told them all Thursday night that that was all of my sick and to go ahead and help me and trying to get you out. Darling, don't you think that anyone can just go up and ask and they'll let you out? It takes money and an attorney in your case. I called Hedelman yesterday and talked to him. He told me he was going to see you yesterday and wrote me a letter yesterday, but I didn't hear from him and also make an appointment at 12 o'clock Monday in Baltimore and talk to you. I have to give him $25 to start the case. I can't stand it any longer alone, darling. Thomas is going to open up a whiskey store. I wish you were here so you could help him. He told me last night, don't cry when Bill comes home. He'll have a home with you and I. But darling, he didn't know anything about the other. I'm not going to tell him anything until I hear from you. And it's no use of me to come to Baltimore until I hear from you. Darling, you know there's no one in the world I love but you. I don't care what no one tells me about you. I don't care. I know it's a story. Darling, I got a letter from my job this morning saying they want me to come to work as soon as I was able, and that made me feel some good. Now my darling can have anything he wants when I go to work. I'm looking for an answer at once so I can see Mr. Hedelman. Bye-bye. With all love to my baby, Mary B. Monday morning, February 2, 1936. My dear darling, I received your letter this morning and was so glad to hear from you. I'm glad to say my cold is a little better, and I walked to drugstore yesterday, but I can't get out today on account of the weather. But darling, as soon as the weather breaks, I'll be over to see you, and that will be one day this week. But if Viola go down there, it's only going to hurt you, not me, darling. You know they're not going to put no money out. All they do is talk, and what you need is an attorney. I'm not going to do anything to hurt you until they get smart. Then I'm going to show them a few little things. I want to talk to you before they do anything. Darling, I feel sorry for you. I'm going to move next week, but I don't know where because apartments are so hard to find. Well, darling, I'll close, waiting for an answer from yesterday. Bye-bye with love. Mary B. William Clark finally wrote her back on February 3rd. My dear darling, I've just received two very sweet letters of yours. One was mailed Friday evening at 1 p.m., the other one Saturday night at 9 p.m., Yes, darling, Mr. Hedelman was to see me Saturday noon. He told me he was going to Washington Sunday and he was going to call you by phone. He also told me he was going to meet you Monday at 12.30 and then was coming with you to talk to me. But he told me you told him three or four times that you were going to do this and that you still never kept your word. So he was getting tired of lies. So you'd better call him and explain things to him because he told me he wasn't going to do anything else until you came over and gave him some money. So you see, darling, he's through now because you didn't come over today. Now, darling, I want you to come over here Thursday and talk to me. 
I can't explain everything by letter, but Joe will tell you what I told them Sunday if you call them. I told them I wouldn't give you up until I talked to you, but they said you were making a fool of me and you had enough charges. But I told them I would like to have a chance to prove myself and I was going to give you a chance. So darling, please don't lie to me about coming over. Now darling, when you come, call Mr. Hedelman and tell him you're here and for him to come over while you're talking to me. Sweets, why not bring Tom with you so he can have a talk with me and see for himself? So please, darling, don't worry your sweet self sick because I'm not going to let them do anything for me until I have a talk with my darling. So don't worry, dear, because I love you and always will. If you were to leave me, no one would ever take your place. So please keep writing me sweet letters as these were today because it makes me feel much better when I receive sweet ones. Well, dear, as there's no news to write about, I shall bring these few lines to a close by saying good night, sweetheart. Always sincerely and respectfully, yours forever, Bill. P.S. Don't say you're coming over and then don't come, because that's our trouble now. Okay. What the hell was going on with these two? I've read these correspondences dozens of times, researching all of the people they mention and their relationships. It seemed to me that William Clark was over a huge barrel where Mary Branch was concerned after she survived his attack at the bridge, and now he was being forced to keep Mary close and under control, telling her what she wanted to hear so she would keep her mouth shut. I don't have a psychology background to try and break down the nuances found in their words to each other, but it's really important for this case to figure out just what was going on. So, I spoke with Dr. Jory Crosen. Dr. Jory Crosen. I'm on faculty with St. Leo University here in Florida. I've been in police work for 50 years. I've been a psychologist for 25 of those 50 years. I'm a police psychologist with one of the departments here in Florida, Springfield, Florida. I've done a lot of consulting work as a private contractor overseas with Department of Justice, Department of State, and Department of Defense. I gave you my really quick assessment of William Clark and of Mary Branch. William Clark, my assessment was he was a very instant gratification type person. He was very quick to anger. He was very manipulative in a very basic and uneducated way. I think he was writing to Mary Branch to keep her close and under control. You're very accurate, okay? And some of the things that would back that up, of course, are the letters, you know. One of the other things I looked at was, what is she doing having any contact with this guy? And, you know, that kind of opened me up to what's her personality like? And even in the letters, you can see that she has a very dependent personality. You know, she's always talking about her health. And I think a lot of this was from the dependent personality. You know, she may not have been intentionally do it, but that's the way these personalities are. Wanting to go back to work, having to move, having to find a new apartment, a new job, trying to get money for the lawyer. And he is feeding into the dependent personality of her to the point of where he's making himself dependent upon her, you know, asking her to go see the lawyer, to get money, to go see this person, that person. She's pretty compliant. I don't think so much manipulation as to keep her quiet. I kind of think that once he attempted to kill her, was in prison, and then had this contact back with her, he's pretty good at reading people. 
and especially, I mean, you know, he's been with this woman. He knows her. You know, he's been able to pretty much manipulate her throughout the relationship. He's got a family. He's got a girlfriend. He's got her, and she's still with him. What would make someone like Mary Branch stay with someone who tried to kill her? What would make her go back to him? Well, you know, it, it goes into the theories on domestic violence and these almost like prisoner of war mentality. And some people, that drives a relationship. You know, this thing of fighting, interaction, makeup, romance. You know, it is very common. It's more steady theoretically today than it was back there, but it's the same behavior. Yeah, and, and think about that safe and secure. He's in jail, okay? So she does feel safe and secure in the relationship now. So that could be one of the moting factors there to, you know, keep in contact with him and carry on this relationship. She's in this secure safety of dependency on him that she is somewhat in control of. Look at the very end of the start of the letter where, you know, this other woman comes back in that she's accusing him of writing to and stuff, yet, you know, She's sticking right with him through these letters. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed... (laughs) Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts, if you dare. Now I'd like to introduce you to Meaningful Beauty, the famed skincare brand created by iconic supermodel Cindy Crawford. It's her secret to absolutely gorgeous skin. Meaningful Beauty makes powerful and effective skincare simple, and it's loved by millions of women. It's formulated for all ages and all skin tones and types, and it's designed to work as a complete skincare system, leaving your skin feeling soft, smooth, and nourished. I recommend starting with Cindy's full regimen, which contains all five of her best-selling products, including the amazing Youth Activating Melon. Serum. This next generation serum has the power of melon leaf stem cell technology. It's melon leaf stem cells encapsulated for freshness and released onto the skin to support a visible reduction in the appearance of wrinkles. With thousands of glowing five-star reviews, why not give it a try? Subscribe today and you can get the amazing Meaningful Beauty system for just $49.95. That includes our introductory five-piece system, free gifts, free shipping, and a 60-day money-back guarantee. All of that available at MeaningfulBeauty.com. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. There's a lot happening these days, but I have just the thing to get you up to speed on what matters without taking too much of your time. The 7 from the Washington Post is a podcast that gives you the seven most important and interesting stories, and we always try to save room for something fun. You get it all in about seven minutes or less. I'm Hannah Jewell. I'll get you caught up with The 7 every weekday. So follow The 7 right now.
Many thanks to Dr. Crosen for helping me sort through this weird push-pull relationship between William Clark and Mary Branch. It was clear that she knew everything and was using that information as a parlay to manipulate him, while at the same time still being dependent on him. Clark pushed the envelope with her just so far before he repeated his love and devotion to her, but there was still the issue of Clark's new girlfriend, Edith Small, Where was she during his prison time? Edith Small was alive and well, doing her level-headed best to try to drive a wedge between Clark and Mary. Mary Branch accused Clark of writing to Edith Small using an alias, George McNeil, so it wouldn't come back to bite him in the ass. But Mary was street savvy, and she caught on and found out, and she called Clark on the carpet. Monday night, February 17th, 1936. My dear darling, I just got home from Baltimore. I stay in there three hours waiting to see you. Say no one could see you, darling. It surely did hurt me when they told me I couldn't see you. When I got back, I received your letter after all. I saw two letters that Edith wrote Mr. George McNeil, darling. Might think you're smart by putting things over on me. I don't care how many lies she tells on me. I saw in her letter she was telling you I was running around to dances and had quit my job, and she wanted you to stop writing to me and hope you would soon get your release so you and she could carry out your plans. Darling, didn't you tell me that you didn't hear from Edith? But I want to know if you're still going to receive letters from Edith now. Darling, it's no use saying it's not true. I saw the letters with my own eyes, darling. You say you want somebody to help you. How can three help you at one time? I called Miss Edith and asked her if she wanted you to stay in there your full time. I told her she was the cause of your being there, and I was over there today to help you. I called Mr. Hedelman, but he was out. Now, darling, please make up your mind which one you want, Edith or me. Darling, I didn't move. I'm going to stay with Helen a few days. Well, darling, we'll close, but I'm all upset. Bye-bye with love and kisses, Mary. Hoping to hear from you as soon as you receive this. Tuesday morning, February 18th, 1936. My dear darling, I drop you a few lines this bad morning. Sweetheart, I didn't receive no letter from you this morning. Darling, what in the world is wrong with you, I want to know. Darling, I guess you was a bad boy. That's why they wouldn't let me see you yesterday. Darling, I don't see why you don't leave Edith alone or me. You tried that when you was outside, and you couldn't get by with that. Didn't I tell you that Joe was carrying news to Edith for you? I thought you told me that Edith caused you enough trouble when you were out, and you were through with her. So many told me you were hearing from Edith under another name, and I just laughed. I read those letters myself, and now I know it's true. I went down to the store to see Miss Edith first, and she was sick in bed, and I talked to her sister, and I told her a plenty. Something would have been done for you yesterday if it hadn't have been for those letters. Why, I did write to you Sunday. I made plans to come over to see you on Monday. You just wait until she gets back to the store. When I get through with her, she'll be glad enough to leave me alone. She's caused me enough trouble telling you to stop writing to me. Well, darling, that's all up to you. When I read those letters, I didn't get angry, but it hurt me and I sat down and cried. Well, I will close for this time. Please answer and let me know what you want me to do. Bye-bye, darling. I wish you luck. Close with love and kisses. Mary B. Over the next week or so, they exchanged words about Edith Small. Mary Branch pushed back on Clark's denials, which he stuck to like a fly to a glue trap, evidenced in his reply to her. 
February 19, 1936. My dear darling, received your letter today and was glad to hear from you, but not concerning Edith because she doesn't concern me in the least. Furthermore, if I had anything to say to her or any other woman, Joe would be the last person in the world to do anything like that for me. Darling, you could throw me up tomorrow, but I would never write Edith and ask her to help me after doing her the way I did for you, so you can do as you please because you've just about drove me crazy with lies. You know I'm pulling my time very hard, but still you'll tell me things that are untrue. I don't believe you saw any letters of that sort. You may have, but it's hard to believe. Darling, I don't believe she's writing those letters. I think someone over here is trying to cause me trouble with you because I've done nothing at all, so I don't know why they wouldn't let you see me. The only reason I know is because I've had two visits this month. I'm very sorry you couldn't see me because I had some very, very important things to talk over with you concerning that friend because I have got to get some money to get a lawyer. I wrote a letter to another lawyer this morning and asked him to come over and see me. Now he may call you. His name is Brown, but you have to go see me first so I can tell you to see my friend because he will help me to pay for a lawyer. He may pay all for me, but I've got to see you so I can tell you what to tell him. Darling, I wrote you two letters at 1213 M Street, so go around and get them. In one of those, I told you to call Cousin Phil, and he would take you to see Mr. Code or Gamble because he knows them well. I wrote him and told him you'd call him. Sweetheart, please believe me, I'm not writing to anyone other than you because I really love you with all my heart and soul. So please don't let people tell you lies about me writing to her because it's a lie. And each and every one of my letters are read in the front office before leaving here. Furthermore, I'm only allowed to write to you, my darling, and my own people, which they've told you here, so please don't let anyone tell you such lies. Well, darling, as there's nothing more that I have to tell you tonight, I shall bring these few lines to a close with all my love to my darling one. Always sincerely and respectfully, yours forever, Bill. P.S. Please send some smokes and stamps. They both eventually moved on to more pressing matters, like getting Clark more cigars, cigarettes, and coffee. Clark also wrote to his sister, Doretha Bowles, and his cousin, Phil Clark, using the same soft soap language he used with people he thought could help him get out of his prison predicament. William Clark cashed in his chips and wrote to both of them for one reason. His sister, Doretha's husband, Bevis Bowles, was a Secret Service agent at the White House, and his cousin, Phil Clark, was a D.C. police officer at the Harbor Patrol. There's no response from Doretha, her husband Bevis Bowles, or his cousin Phil Clark in the file. Bevis Bowles and cousin Phil weren't about to put their careers on the line for William Clark or help him get out of prison after an attempted murder conviction. On the same day he wrote to his sister Doretha, Clark also wrote to his father. It was pathetic. Hello, Dad. Just a few lines at this time to let you hear from me, which I hope they find you and Mother all well. I'm feeling right well at present, but not so happy. Well, Dad, Mary was here today and had a talk with me, which I believe things are going to work out for me before long. Let's hope so anyway, because I want to come home. Dad, I've not heard from any of you to know whether they arrived home Sunday safe or not. They said they were going to send me some money, but as yet I've not received it. So I'm going to ask you as my father to please send me $2 because I really need it. I hope I'll be able to repay you someday. Dad, why is it you never come to see me? I would love to see you and have a talk with you. So please answer this letter and tell me you'll be to see me soon. You'll never know how happy I would be to receive a letter from you telling me you was coming over. So please come, Dad. 
Well, as there is no news to tell you, I shall bring these few lines to a close by saying good night to all. Always sincerely and respectfully, your son, Bill. P.S. Please give my best regards to mother and all. Tell Billy I say hello. Five days later, William Clark's mother wrote him back. Her words were superficial and terse. It was clear that the family had other important issues to deal with, but his mother did take the time to send him a quick note and one dollar. Dear Frank, guess you think it's strange not hearing from me last week. I've had so much to do while Margaret was in the hospital. She came home Thursday, has to go back tomorrow. I don't know if she'll have to stay or not. Your father says to tell you he can't come over there, this bad weather and he hasn't a penny just now, so you'll hear from him later. Viola has moved on G Street Northeast, just at the foot of Pickford Street. Came up this morning after sending the children to school. Here she comes now, it's 8 o'clock. I'm glad to hear you think things are working out nicely for you. Viola says she's going to collect that money for you. I'm sending you one dollar in this letter, all I have. Times are very hard and my, the weather is something awful here. Well, the kids are making so much noise, I don't know what I'm writing. With love from all at home, Mother. P.S. Hello, Frank, from Pal. P.S. Let me know if you received the paper. Pal was Clark's wife, Viola. She and their three children had moved out of his parents' house and into her own place, but they were still visiting his parents on a regular basis. In her police interview, Mary Branch said that William Clark had been in trouble for failing to pay alimony. If Clark wasn't going to support his own wife and kids, his parents would. In another letter, Clark wrote to Mrs. A.T. Schroth. The Schroths were wealthy owners of a meatpacking business, and they took pity on Clark, sending him a few packs of cigarettes. He thanked them with the same flourishing language he was perfectly capable of using when he wanted something from someone, a true manipulator. On the same day he wrote to the Schroths, William Clark also sent a letter to a friend named Neva Bardwelly. Dear Neva, just a few lines to let you know I'm still thinking of you all, hoping this note finds you all very well. Please give my regards to Sally, Nettie, and Miss Susie, I hope you're getting along fine in your new business and that success will always be yours. I understand that you've opened up a school of beauty culture for Sally and Nettie. I think that was mighty fine of you, and I hope that success will be theirs also. Miss Susie wrote me and asked if I could receive cigarettes, etc. I answered and told her that I could, but she's never answered my letter, so I suppose she didn't receive it. You see, I have no money with which to buy smokes, and I would certainly appreciate it if she or you could please send me some. You've always been good to me and I shall never forget you. Tell Bard I think of him too quite often, and that I hope his business is prospering too, and tell him to think of me when he takes his next shot. Ha ha. And now with regards to you, with hopes of hearing from you soon, I remain, as ever, sincerely, Bill Clark. Neva Bardwelly. Nettie, Sally, Miss Susie. A school of beauty culture? I had to do some deep digging to find out who Neva Bardwelly was. When I found out, my theories started to make a lot more sense and solidified my thoughts about what happened, who did it, and why this case was shelved and never solved. Her name wasn't Neva Bardwelly. William Clark misspelled her last name. It was Neva Berardinelli. She was James Weir's sister.
If you have information about the Car Barn Murders, go to the Shattered Souls Facebook page and leave me a message. Opening music by Sam Johnson at samjohnsonlive.com. Shattered Souls, The Car Barn Murders is produced by Karen Smith and Angel Heart Productions. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, We've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Good sleep should come naturally, and with the new Natural Hybrid mattress, it can. A collaboration between Lisa and West Elm, the Natural Hybrid is expertly crafted from natural latex, natural wool, and certified safe foams to elevate your sleep sanctuary and support a greener tomorrow. Plus, every purchase helps fuel Lisa's work with shelters and those in need. Don't put off a good night's sleep any longer. Get a Lisa mattress today for a sound sleep tonight. Visit lisa.com slash iHeart. That's l-e-e-s-a dot com slash Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cb for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA.